how's everybody tonight? Well, I'm glad that you're all good. <clears throat> we are going to begin the final four weeks of Ezekiel. So for some, that will be exciting. <laughs> um, of course, it may be somewhat confusing as well. We'll see. So the last part of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, is what is known as the temple vision. So this is the, the vision that God gives to Ezekiel, and it is a vision about the last days, the temple of the last days. Now, there's a lot of people that talk about There's a lot of talk these days about the last days. You guys notice any of that? Um, there's a lot of talk about what are we looking for and what should we be seeing. And, and um, uh, quite frankly, a lot of people can sell a lot of books talking about, hey, you know what? Um, let me tell you what you need to look for. And here's the... The world leader coming on the scene, he's going to talk to Russia. Russia's going to get together with Iran. They're going to form a coalition. They're going to do all these things. And if you've been with us through Ezekiel, you know that I don't believe that's going to happen. So Ezekiel, the battle of Gog and Magog, that, that battle that a lot of people are looking for that kind of signifies the, the last days, I think is a, is a battle where God describes the destruction of evil once and for all. You see it again in Revelation 19. And you'll see it again in Revelation 20. And so in Ezekiel, as Ezekiel wraps up that vision, chapter 38 and 39, he lifts his eyes to the, a vision of the temple. Now this vision of the temple, some people will say this vision of the temple is the temple of the millennial reign. I do absolutely believe in a millennial reign of Christ. He will rule and reign. I actually think the millennial reign of Christ never ends. So, um, so we'll discuss some of that as we go on. His, uh, his, his kingdom never ends. It's pretty clear in scripture. So we'll, we'll get the chance to discuss some of that as we go through this section. Tonight would be a little bit different. We're in Ezekiel 40 through 48 for the next four weeks. I would encourage you to... Be a good enough student to go home and read Ezekiel 40 through 48. There's a lot of detail, a lot of description of the size of things. God's going to say to Ezekiel, I want you to walk through the temple and tell the people what you see. And so Ezekiel is going to be describing this temple that he's walking through. He's going to be describing it and he's going to be describing the events that are taking place in it. And so we want to kind of have an understanding of why does that matter? Why, who cares about the temple? And so we probably need to set some of that background. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to set the background for what's the big deal about the temple. Why, why should that matter? So we won't be in Ezekiel very much, but I promise you'll get an exercise as you go through the word. So as we take a look, the beginning starts in Genesis. Isn't that a good place to start? So the Bible tells us that God would walk with Adam in the cool of the evening. His desire is to be in the midst or in the middle of his creation. He wants to be with them. Now sin entered into the equation and Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Right? Everybody is tracking with me. And so you have a, a period of time where God was not able 
God, God did not dwell in the midst of his people anymore. His people came to him. They came, Cain and Abel, and the, the early relatives after Adam and Eve, I believe, would gather before the entrance to the Garden of Eden. You guys heard of that, right? Which was guarded by cherubim. Now, if you know something about the Bible, you know that the signs and symbols of the Bible hold fast all the way through. So I'm going to ask you a question. Over the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled, what was over the Ark? Cherubim. Every door to the temple or tabernacle is going to be decorated by cherubim. Just like there was a cherubim with a sword who guarded the entrance to Eden. Somewhere Adam and Eve learned how to do sacrifices, right? You know the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel come... they come and bring their offering before the Lord. But there's no chapter that tells us, here's where the Lord taught them how to do that. Right? You guys with me? So they would come into the presence of God, and they brought an offering to make make the, the ground where God would meet with them holy. Because after the fall, the ground was sinful. So the sacrificial system is about making sacred space for God to be with his people. I want you to, that that theme is going to carry through as we look at all the temples. We're going to take a look at them, kind of the history of it, to lay the groundwork for next week when we dive into the description that Ezekiel gives. So the first one we're going to talk about is the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is a beautiful, beautiful, incredibly amazing picture of Christ in every aspect. Every part of the description of the tabernacle points to Christ. It is an incredible study that we don't have time to do tonight, but I just want you to be aware of it. It has this incredible beauty where it all points to Jesus. For example, all the beauty of the tabernacle was covered by God goat skin so if you were to walk up on the encampment and you'd say you know most people the the temples that they had were where they kept all their gold and silver and but if you walked up on the tabernacle it looked like all the other tents the only difference is it was in the midst of the people and from the outside it just looked like everybody else but once you walked inside Now you saw all the gold, all the beauty, just like Christ. When he came, he looked just like everybody else. But when you enter into a relationship with him, you see all the beauty, the divinity of Christ evident when we come through that relationship with him. In the book of Exodus, chapter 15, here's what the Lord speaking, Moses, this is a song of Moses, in uh, Exodus 15. And as the people are singing this song, praising God, I want to bring your attention to what they say. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. So this is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is going to be planted where? On God's mountain. Now in the ancient Near Eastern cosmology, mountain is a, a symbol of kingdoms. It is a, it's a picture. Where, where did all the gods dwell? in Greek mythology, on the top of Mount Olympus, right? 
So, so the, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's symbolic. It's talking about where's God's mountain. God's mountain is Jerusalem. Have you guys ever been to Jerusalem? Well, when you go, it's not a mountain. Well, it is, but you're not going to go what a mountain that is. Right? Most of the time, it's this highest peak. The point is, God is saying, this one's mine. And this is going to be special throughout time. So listen to what they say. You will bring them in, the nation of Israel, plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, where God will stay, where? In the midst of his people. Don't miss the theme that's going on. Uh, Your sanctuary, Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord will reign for how long? Forever and ever, right? His, his kingdom will know no end. So you have this beautiful picture of God has a place, the place where God, he could have chose any place. He could have chose the biggest mountain, but he didn't. He could have been born in a palace, but he wasn't. He was born in a stable, right? He chose Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is, will be the, the foothold of his kingdom, the place from which he will reign and rule. And it's the place where his tabernacle was to be, and it's the place where his temple is going to be built, right? And then it's also the place which he will walk out of and say, see, your house is left to you empty. I'm not there. That's going to be important. And in Exodus 25, we read about the instructions for the tabernacle. And I want you to kind of try, as we, as we think about reading Ezekiel 40 through 48, and we think about what Ezekiel is going to talk about, we want to be good students of the word. We want to grow. We want to understand what is it that God is teaching us? What is he showing us? In Exodus 25, we have the instructions to build the tabernacle, and they're very detailed instructions. He says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. This is a contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, purple, scarlet, uh, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary, listen, that I may dwell, what's it say? In their midst. So when we go through Leviticus, when we go through the tabernacle and the temple, all the things that are going on around the temple is all about creating sacred space where God will dwell in the midst of his people. And if you think about it, when we get to Revelation 21, which we probably won't get to tonight, but when we get to Revelation 21, and we're, we're, what does it say in Revelation 21? New heaven and new earth. And John says, and I looked, and there was no temple there. Why? For the Lord will dwell in the midst of his people. He will be their God, and they shall be his people. So you see, the redemption is complete. New heaven, new earth doesn't need to be cleansed. It's fresh. It's, it's new. That's where we're going. This is where we are. Does it make sense? This is where we began. Now as we work our way through the, through the journey, the tabernacle eventually became despised among the people. They actually forgot about it. 
Where's the tabernacle? I don't know. You know where the tabernacle is? No. It's, it hung out for a long time at Shiloh. But the people got busy about their day. And the Lord no longer was there in their midst in Jerusalem. It was kept someplace else, which was not what God wanted. And so the Lord raised up a king. His name was David. David, having a heart after God, wanted God to have what? A house. So he could be where? In their midst. So the Lord, the Lord is going to utilize um, David to build him a temporary, or not a temporary building like the tabernacle, but a permanent building, the temple wherein he will reside. So in 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, so we have a time frame, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of, month of Ziv, in the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was, and you have all the measurements, 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the, of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, 10 cubits deep in the front of the house. He made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. So lots of measurements, right? Lots of description. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was ever heard in the house while it was being built. Everything was cut somewhere else and brought and placed together. Now in verse 11, I just want you to see the, the instructions to build, the building going on, the detail, and then verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning the house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep my commandments, and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. So what was God's purpose in the temple? I will dwell in the midst of my people. His presence. He is Yahweh Shema, the Lord who is present. Now in 586 B.C., that temple was destroyed. So that temple was destroyed prior to the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple. That temple was brought down. Now that, that, that was the result of God's discipline upon the children of Israel because the children of Israel despised his presence. So God removed his presence from their midst. Now, I'm going to argue that God's presence was not in the midst of his people until Christ walked into the temple and cleansed it. Ezekiel saw a vision, right? The glory of God departed from the temple, came out to Babylon. And Ezekiel looks up and he's like, Lord, aren't you supposed to be in the temple? Nope, I'm, I'm here letting you know. And through God's prophets and through... I'm not saying that the word of God wasn't with the people, that the call of God wasn't with the people, but they had no presence of God. Yahweh Shema, the Lord who is present, living 
in his temple. When the priests used to walk into the Holy of Holies and bring the sacrifice, the Shekinah of God filled it. In fact, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Kabold of God drove the priests out. God's presence was so heavy in the temple, the priests couldn't handle being inside it. That's not how it was at the time of Christ. At the time of Christ, it had become something else. It was a building, but the glory of the Lord had departed. And when the glory of the Lord returned, he was rejected. Those are going to be important concepts for us to kind of drill down into as we consider. Now, the Babylonian temple is destroyed. The children of Israel are 70 years in in Babylon, and then they are released to return to the land. And they're going to rebuild the temple. And I want you guys to see that God is in it. He's in the, you want to go rebuild the house? Let's do it. He's in it. It says in in Ezra, we'll we'll read in Ezra 5, probably the whole chapter, let's see. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord of Israel who was over them. And Zerubbabel, the the son of of Shealtiel the, and Joshua, sorry, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So you have a move of God happening in Jerusalem after the 70 year captivity. Not very many Jews wanted to come back, but some came back and they began to rebuild. And so this move of God is happening, right? They're building the temple. And at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you the decree to build this house? These are Jews who are now coming to the prophets and the Jews who are building the house of God. And they're saying, what are you doing this for? Who told you you could do this? Interesting. Why why would you build that here? What's going on? And if you were to go to Israel today and ask them about their temple, easily 75% of them would say, who cares about a temple? What do we need a temple for? Because that's not their focus. Like everyone else, their, their focus is on life. What things can I have? How do I build my own kingdom. So they asked them thus, what are your names who, who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. This is the Medo-Persian governance. And they all, uh, and then an answer be returned by letter from concerning it. So this is a copy of the letter they wrote to the province beyond the river. This is what they said to King Darius. Verse seven, they sent him a report in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king, we went to Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you the decree to build this house and finish this structure? Now, whose decree did they need? You think they needed Darius's decree? Or Cyrus's decree? Or somebody else's decree? Is God's decree enough? 
Or do you have to have a decree from the state to tell you it's okay? So they're building. They're doing. He's written this letter. And so he's, he's, he's asking the question. Uh, we don't know where they got the idea they could do this. Uh, but because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house, carried away the people to Babylonia. However, the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, Cyrus the king, made a decree that this house of God shall be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels and the house of God and Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple uh, that was in Jerusalem and brought to the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out uh, of, of the temple of Babylon and delivered them uh, into the one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go out, put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the God... Let the house of God be rebuilt in its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building. It is not yet finished. Therefore, it would seem good to the king, search your royal archives in Babylon to see whether or not this decree was ever made. So they're complaining. Jews are complaining that Jews are building the house of God. They're rebuilding the temple. So they write to Darius the king, and basically the funny part of the story, you guys can read the rest there all the way through 612, tells the story. Uh, Darius searches the record, says, yep, not only did Cyrus say that, but but we're going to make sure that out of the revenues that you collect from the taxes of the people there, you need to start paying the workers. So the guys who complain now lose some of their revenue so they can pay the guys who are building the temple of God. So during the time of Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell us that the old men who were children at the time of the captivity wept when they saw it. They wept because it was rebuilt, and they wept because it was not filled. It's a house. It's a building, a place to worship and offer sacrifices. But the kabod of God, the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord had not returned to the temple. Now, around, uh, well, around the time of the Romans, Herod decided to do a remodeling project. So Herod remodeled it. He redid it. He spent Several years in remodeling, putting it together. In Matthew 24, as Jesus is there, and he's walking away from the temple, heading up to the Mount of Olives, it says Jesus left the temple. It's going away, and his disciples came to point out the buildings. Look how beautiful the buildings are. Did the building matter? It's what's in the building that mattered. And that wasn't there. So they, the disciples, look, look at this beautiful building. Look how big it is. Look how beautiful it is. Isn't this amazing? What did Jesus say? Not one rock will be left on another. Why? Because the glory of God returned to the temple and you rejected him. In Luke 21 Jesus said this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. 
Jerusalem was surrounded in 69 AD by Titus. Titus later gets called back to Rome to become emperor, and his son Vespasian takes over the invasion in 70 AD. Vespasian destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and there's no temple since. Well, let's say it this way. There's no building. So Jesus said, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those inside the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth, wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Gentiles trampled Jerusalem in 70 AD. And as far as I'm concerned, it's still trampled, unless you're not paying attention. I know there's a nation there that can't operate sovereignly. Can they? Well, what happens every time they start to act sovereignly? There's this thing called the United Nations that issues a decree against them no matter what they do. do. Is there a temple on the Temple Mount? No, the very middle of Jerusalem, their capital, is held by Palestinians, not by the Jews. So when we look at it, we, we, the Bible says, look, they're going to be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is done. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. We do know that there's another temple coming. How do we know there's another temple coming? Well, there's another world leader coming. Just like many of the world leaders in the past. But there's one last guy. What do we call him? Oh, the Antichrist. You guys have heard of him. Yeah, you know what his name is? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, if I repeat that, we'll get thrown off of YouTube. <clears throat> so, if the, the Antichrist that's coming, his name is irrelevant. Because as believers, there's only one person we're looking for, and that is Jesus Christ. We don't need the anti, I could care less who he is. I don't need to know. It'll become abundantly clear. Trust me. But until that time, the Bible never says, Jackie, you keep your eyes out for the Antichrist. What does it say? Lift up your eyes and you keep your eyes peeled for Jesus Christ. We want to be seeing him, right? We, we should be listening. So we know there's a, a temple coming. One more temple coming. The Bible tells us, I'll, I'll give you kind of a quick rundown prophetically of why we believe that. In Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 9 is, is the primary prophetic scripture well let's say this it's the only prophetic scripture in the bible that that delineates anything like a seven-year tribulation period it's one place in the bible daniel 9 in daniel 9 27 it says and he this is the prince who is to come he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week that one week is a seven he will make a peace treaty with the many the many is a Hebrew idiom for Israel. He'll make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
Three and a half years. That three and a half years is talked about a lot prophetically, right? Three and a half, three and a half, 42 months, 1,260 days, 1,280 days, 1,335 days. In Daniel, there's a bunch of them to, to discuss time, times, and a half time. This three and a half year period that is discussed. And on the wing of abominations shall come one that makes desolate. We call that the abomination of desolation. Jesus spoke of it. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Who's the desolator? The Antichrist. What's the decreed end? He will go into the lake of fire. And God will reign forever and ever. New heaven, new earth. Now, Revelation 11, 1 and 2, listen, it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. He'll make a treaty for seven years. For three and a half years, they're going to trample the city. They're going to cut off sacrifice and offering. It's not really going to be all that it was promised to be. Um, and the temple is going to be some form of of uh, a compromise because John's told don't measure the outer course that means there are no outer courts today one of the biggest issues about the temple mount is there's a dome of a rock there right the dome of the rock third most holy site for the nation of Islam and so there there would have to be some type of compromise for that to occur how, how would they how would they build if they went up there to build a temple now what happens they go up there and tear down the Dome of the Rock. What happens? War. Right now. No question. From who? Everybody. So they don't. Because the Bible says there's a world leader that's going to come that's going to orchestrate those things. That kicks off this period of time. This world leader is going to be an arrogant guy. Daniel eleven thirty six says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every god. He will speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper <coughs> till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. So this is going to be an arrogant guy. An arrogant leader who talks about how great he is and how much greater than all the gods he is. Jesus said... In Matthew 24, verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. The holy place is one of the, one of the rooms of the temple. You had the holy place, the holy of holies, and the outer court. So when you see him standing, now how is it that he will stand in a holy place? Well, there has to be a holy place for him to stand in. Which is usually why most people think that there will be a, at least a temple rebuilt that is going to be uh, the glory of God will not enter, but the Antichrist will. Listen to Second Thessalonians. To me, this is the most important part of the puzzle in terms of the, the temple and the tribulation. He says, now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. 
That word rebellion is the word apostasia. It's an apostasy, the falling away. The turning away from the faith. That day will not happen until you see men and women turning away from the faith. In large amounts. Curious? Are you paying attention to these days? That day will not come unless the falling away, the rebellion comes first. And then the man of lawlessness, as the Antichrist, will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. Now most premillennialists believe that what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to enter into a temple that will be built sometime during the tribulation period at somewhere near the midway point he's going to walk inside and he's going to demand to be worshipped that is not an uncommon thing world leaders even in the current age have demanded the same thing of their people it's not new it might be new to you and me but it's not new to the rest of the world they've already been having to deal with things like this, and that's been since before the time of Daniel. That's why Daniel said the kingdom of men always do what? They always degrade and fall in rebellion. Another arises until the kingdom of God, the rock strikes, strikes a statue, destroys it, turns it to powder, and that rock grows into a mountain that does what? Fills the whole earth, the kingdom of God over the whole earth. Now, the, the temple that still brings us to, now we finally got to the subject of Ezekiel. Aren't you glad? So now we come to Ezekiel. Now, the question that we're going to ask ourselves as we go through Ezekiel, and we won't spend a lot of time tonight, but the question we're going to ask ourselves as we come through Ezekiel is, what temple is this? Ezekiel's given a vision, and we're going to discuss a lot of things, a lot of things that he doesn't talk about in that temple, a lot of strange things that Ezekiel describes as a part of that temple. And you will hear from me that I don't believe Ezekiel's temple is a description of the Messianic temple. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Ezekiel's temple is an allegory of hope for the children of Israel, for something that would be experienced in your day and mine. See, in your day and mine, post-Christ, the Lord has decreed the year of jubilee what do i mean did you pay for your sin that debt you owed you wrote a check for that oh jesus did what do we call that in old testament scripture that was the year of jubilee where man was decreed to be free set free from the debt that he owed and here's the interesting part in the new testament Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19, he said to the people, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you can raise it in three days. But he was speaking about his body. Oh, so the body of Christ is the temple of God? Let me ask you something. Does the body of Christ need a special sacrifice to be Holy ground. Hmm. First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty. 
Paul would write, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, which is the temple of God. Holy space. Why? Because you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Is there a need for any other sacrifice? What's it say in Hebrews? Nope. Why? Jesus' sacrifice paid once for all. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. What is it that Paul's describing? A building. What kind of building? Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter's going to say the same thing. You are a holy people, peculiar people. You are being built into a holy structure, sacred ground, where God can dwell where? In the midst of his people. Interesting, yes? So as we look at it, and as we look, we're going to spend a few more weeks, obviously, and I'll, I'll wrap up tonight, but I wanted to give you some background so you understand what's the whole point? What is the point of a temple? It's not just, it's not just there has to be a building. and it, it was actually about something. It was about God being with his people in their midst. It was about the priest coming face to face with his glory it was about the worshipers being driven out of its presence because the presence of God was so heavy. They were just, they freaked out. They ran outside. They didn't stop them from praising God, but they were blown away at the presence of God. You ever been blown away at the presence of God in your life? Hmm. Interesting, no? So as we look at Ezekiel and the vision that he has and the description and the terms that he's going to use, just Try to have an open mind about what is God saying? What is he telling his people? Because that temple's never been built, not the one that's been described by Ezekiel. And it has a lot of strange things going on we'll, we'll discuss as we go through. But keep in mind this reality in the kingdom of God, or at least what I would consider to be the kingdom of God, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be them with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. No mourning. No crying, no pain, for the former things have all passed away. What a glorious day we look for. Amen? So we'll get more into that as we go on. This is by way of introduction to try to understand a little bit about what's going on with the temple talk. And it'll, I'm sure, get a little more confusing or enlightening as we go on. So feel free to join me in the journey. Let's go before the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can come before you, Lord. We thank you for who you are, what you show us in your word, that your word is living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, that there are things, God, your word is declaring to us, and we want to know them.
And I guess probably the greatest way to learn is to not already assume we know, but to just patiently wait for you as you reveal your truth to us through your word. So God, as we come to this last part of Ezekiel, three more weeks, eight chapters, looking at this promise of a, of a temple, Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes, help us to understand the point behind the scriptures as you're describing them. And may you be glorified and magnified in and through it all as we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.